So we are back for another episode of An Incomplete History. Um, today we're going to be doing part two of our history of Mormonism. Uh, theoretically, we're going to go from 1846 to the present. But most of what we're going to talk about, I think, is still in the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. That's the interesting part. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, I'd just like a couple, to put a couple of shout outs. We appreciate your comments and suggestions uh, for content for future episodes. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Please check out our Patreon. We are now listened to by over 12,000 people in 25 countries. Dang. Oh, that's a lot. It is. Um, our website also gets like there are hacking attempts on our website a lot more. Oh now. my gosh, we're so popular now. So I think that like that's, that's an indication there's some visibility out there. Uh, but yeah, if there's a topic you want to want us to cover and it has to do with history, comment or shoot us an email on the website and um, we'll try to work it in. Uh, Hillary and I are always up to talk about things we have no expertise in. Sure. We're really good at that. <laughs> No, but we are trained to do that. We're trained to like take a topic and figure what's out, figure out what's going on, do some research, and then be able to connect it to larger themes. And that's just basically what we do every day. Well, one of the one of the skills you learn in graduate school as a, as a doctoral candidate is to kind of educate yourself on a topic. Um, because in like education all the time we're being asked to teach courses that it's like i had never taught a class in that before you should hear some of the classes i've taught <laughs> you always laugh at some of the ones i have because they end up being extra outlandish but... well so hillary is not a 20th century historian at all no hillary's not uh but she was asked to teach a world war ii class at one point i love teaching that class and i know but, lots of times but... But it has great. nothing to do with your training at all. No, but I ended up being like so well versed in World War II stuff. I mean, just like, and that's the other thing is when you're not an expert in something, you work even harder to make sure that you've got it down. And mm -hmm. so that's one of my favorite classes I teach now because I've taught it lots of times now. And it's definitely one of my favorites. So you like World War II? I do love World War II. What's your favorite? What's your favorite tank? My favorite tank. So that's the thing, like. <laughs> I don't really care about that kind of stuff, but. <laughs> but the students do. Yeah. The Panzer. The male division. students. Can we there's, talk about the Panzer tanks? There's, I mean, there's I guess. Always, there's always the one male student who wants to have that super in-depth discussion about the aircraft or the ships or the what tanks. What always cracks me up about that is they already know everything about it. It's like. <laughs> What do you want? You just want to lecture to me about what you already know about? Because when you were five, you had GI Joes and then got really into the aircraft. Or say, I don't know. It's always interesting, but they're like eager to point out like, yeah, and then this battle and then that battle. And it's like, that's not really the bulk of the interesting stuff that happens during the Second World War. But anyway, it's yeah. always good because yeah. they always ask to, can we watch Saving Private Ryan? No. Have you seen it? Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies. Well, then go watch it at your house. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to spend class time watching Save It Private Ryan. Can we just watch the opening scene? Oh, my God. <sighs> <laughs> and the class is always predominantly men. I had 100 students in the class at Penn State, and 98 of them were men. Doesn't surprise me. The two girls were ROTC. Yeah. Anyway, it's fun. I like it. They end up liking the class and they're like, oh, I never knew about that stuff. Yeah, that's why you're here to learn. So um, anyway, we're we're open to covering anything. And if you want us uh, to talk about battles and panzer tanks, we can do that. We can. We'll probably take it in a direction you're not quite expecting, but yes. So, well, let's get to it. Let's get to our history of Mormonism part two. Part two. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. 
So, before we get into it, I have to ask, how's the weather? You didn't ask me last week. Did I not? You didn't, know, And I was like, gosh, should I mention it? But we were so short on time. No, you didn't. But it's nice. Um, the girls are out playing with, uh, we got them squirt guns. So, they're pumped. It's like mid-80s and running around, squirting each other and having a good time. They're like brightly colored, like obviously not handguns, I hope. No, no, no. Why would I buy them? <laughs> when I was a when kid. When I was a kid, we used to paint them black. When I was a kid, they came and were purposely made to look like handguns. Yeah. Well, and we used to actually, we used to spray paint ours black and spray. Remember they had the orange tips? We would uh. spray paint the tips black. And that is so stupid. I don't know why we would do that or who would let us do this, but well, we would. Kids. Kids are stupid. Yeah. But what <laughs> adults were like, yeah, go ahead and spray paint your play guns to look like real ones. Like, that's just. Anyway, it, it was the 90s. <laughs> well, summer is here in San Diego. Beautiful. Kind of a little warmish. Um, no, no gloom, no May Gray. May Gray burns really early now. Nice. Um, Sounds pleasant. It is. It is very pleasant right now. We'll see uh, <laughs> how this summer progresses. But uh, so we're back to Mormonism. We're kind of to refresh people's memory. Last time we left off with Joseph Smith dying, he was killed, murdered by someone. Right. It, it could have been a murder. It could have been suicide. And defenestrated. <laughs> yes, which means to be thrown out of a window. Yeah, literally. it's one of my favorite like, words. <laughs> that word cracks me up. It's a good one. <laughs> uh, we're not laughing about him dying. We're laughing about the word. And so he's he's killed. His brother is killed. His brother was the one who was actually supposed to take over the church. So it creates a real crisis in 1844 when the two leaders of the Mormon faith, this nascent faith, mind you, right? About 15, a little over 15 years it's been going now. Um, and so it creates a crisis in the faith. Who is going to lead next? And there isn't um, a consensus. And remember... Cowdery had left the church because of the move towards the, the idea of polygamy. Because Joseph Smith was trying to marry his wife. Right. Brigham Young, at this point, was opposed to polygamy. Mm -hmm. He becomes very much not opposed to polygamy. Well, yeah. So how does Brigham Young become the leader then? So he is the leader of what they call the Council of Twelve. And when the when this this crisis that this crossroads right we're like could have gone so many different ways and there are people who say well we should only be following the people who are descendants of joseph smith then they're saying we should only be following you know um these leaders who are you know in charge of other regions or we should only be following the people from the council of 12 and so I think one of the biggest the biggest consensus was we need to follow the leader of the Council of Twelve, which is kind of like a set of setup of elders. Mm -hmm. Maybe like I don't know. I grew up Catholic, something like cardinals or something like that. Like that, right? Like these lesser leaders. And Brigham Young was in charge of the Council of Twelve, so he ends up getting a lot of leaders or a lot of people to follow him as their new leader. Um, but they it branches off and splits in other directions, and there are still. Um, surviving sects of Mormonism that aren't called, you know, LDS, but that, that followed other people as leaders of the faith in 1844. So, so Brigham Young's the leader of that quorum of the 12 apostles. And he... A little derivative. A little derivative. <laughs> he decides they need to leave. They need to move west. They need to actually leave places where they're going to be scrutinized and attacked by people, they need to move west. And they start to do this in 1846. Uh, so 1846, we get the first kind of land movement in February of 1846. That is winter. 
but some follow him and some follow another person, right? To different regions. But, they all well, but then, but then, so, so there's a group that leaves, uh, Nauvoo. How did we decide? We Nav- pronounce Nauvoo, it? I thought. Nauvoo. Um, February of 46. At the same time, you've got Mormons who are taking a ship out of New York City bound um, for what would in the future be called San Francisco. And they're led by this guy, Samuel Brennan. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that that trek that that ship's going to make, which is around the tip of South America. Yeah, because there's no Panama Canal at this point. Um is a voyage that in just a couple of years, many people are going to be making as the gold rush happens in California. Mm -hmm. So that ship leaves and then you have these people who leave on land and it takes leaving Illinois in the winter. It takes them until June to arrive at their first destination, which is, um, this little place near Council Bluffs, Iowa, they call it Canesville. Um, and they eventually establish winter quarters, a place called winter quarters in Nebraska. So by the end of 1846, basically everybody who had chosen to follow Brigham Young um, had either left Illinois completely or were in temporary settlements like departing. Um, now here's the question. Here's one of the first historical questions. Do they leave Illinois in February of 1846 voluntarily, or are they forced to leave? Well, I think that there was growing tensions, right? And with their leader dead, their two leaders dead. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week that there are some theories that the Masons actually took over this whole thing. And like, they were perhaps out to get Joseph Smith and his brother because they had been taking over a lot of the different ritualistic things about Masonry, which we're going to talk about in more detail in another episode. But I think that there were just a lot of tensions at this time where they're like, they're just weren't, they weren't welcome in Illinois anymore. And no, I don't think that they were driven out, but I think that it was a hostile environment and they felt that they needed to. And what's important to point out at this time, if you're leaving in 1846, they're going to westward territories that are not a part of the United States. They're leaving the United States. For Mexico. For Mexico. Right. I think that that's so interesting because when you think about, well, they're moving westward and we're using these words like, oh, they're going to Utah or whatever. We automatically think, oh, they're still in the U.S. They're le- they're choosing to leave the country. Well, when many of the people from the United States go to Texas, Texas is part of Mexico as well. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes so, its own country, which it still thinks it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh <laughs> So they leave, and over the next year, this place, Winter Quarters, becomes the new the new official headquarters of the church. And Brigham Young becomes the leader, and they start to call him the Modern Moses. Modern Moses, that's right. Because he's leading, he's leading an exodus. Again, derivative. Mm-hmm. They've got this story, and they're just taking from it, you know? So... They don't, I mean, they're, they're at winter quarters and they don't really have a direction to go or what to do at this point. And in 1847, winter of 1847, Brigham Young gets a revelation. And remember, part of being a saint and part of being a prophet is the idea that you can receive these constant revelations. So he gets a revelation and the revelation is he needs to break up his 4,000 people who are gathered here into smaller groups, name a captain in charge of each group. Those groups are going to start to go West and they're going to establish kind of these way stations. Mm -hmm. What they're going to create is something called the Mormon trail. And I wish there were a game like that instead of the Oregon trail, the Mormon trail. 
Um, it also, the revelation also dictated that Mormons should do the following. When they're happy, they should sing songs and dance. And when they are sad, they should pray. It's good, after life, this, it's good life advice. Right. So after this revelation is made, made kind of public, William Clayton, a Mormon pioneer in Iowa at the time, um, writes a song in response to the news that his wife had given birth. And it becomes one of the most famous Mormon hymns. I'm only going to play you a little bit of it. So evidently, the idea of showing joy through song was very different in the mid-19th century than it is to a 21st century sensibility. Yeah, that didn't sound like a real, like, get up and dance sort of song. sounded like something like a funeral dirge. Yeah, it sounded funereal. (laughs) It does. um, But this song becomes this song that the Mormons sing as they cross the Great Plains headed west. And it's while they're camped at Council Bluffs, winter quarters, that the United States Army approaches Brigham Young. And? Which is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) So the Army, so the U.S. government and the Army in particular had refused to protect Mormons earlier. Well, and come out uh, trying to murder all of them later. Right. But at this moment, they look at this really well-organized group. That's all kind of following the, the dictates of Brigham Young. And they say, you know what, would you organize a group of 500 men to come fight in this war with Mexico? We're having to the country you're trying to move to away from us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they do it. There's a Mormon battalion. They They don't see any action. So the Mormon, So the Mormon battalion is established. And I mean, Brigham Young has a couple of pieces of rationale for this. I think the most, I think there are kind of, we can get into other reasons he may have had, but I think the most important initial idea is these soldiers are going to get paid and the group as a whole could use that money. Yes, because their money is communal, really. Um. So the 500 members of the Mormon battalion leave and Brigham Young receives another prophecy, another revelation. And it is that the battalion will not actually see battle, but will eventually join their families in Utah. And that ends up being true, right? I mean, they don't see battle. They do not. However, they endure the longest infantry march in recorded U.S. history. Oh, really? 2,000 miles. Wow. Wow. Council Bluffs, Iowa, to San Diego, California, to Utah. Wow. That's a, that's a long truck. It's a long yeah. walk. Mm-hmm. So they get to San Diego. I mean, this is really interesting. Now, what I find interesting here is that if you go to the Mormon Battalion Monument in San Diego, which is down in a place called Old Town San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, this is 1848 that this happens. Wait, is it 1848 or 1847? Well, they leave in 1846. And I think by 1847 1847. is when they leave. So it's 1847. Mm -hmm. Um, part of the memorial basically asserts that the Mormon battalion paves the way for the California gold rush. Because they discover a lot of gold themselves. That is the argument. That is the argument. (laughs) Uh, I think if you look at actual records, there's already an idea of gold. I mean, Sutter's Mill hasn't happened, but um, by 1847-48, you've got people who are already there. In fact, people who arrive in 1849 are kind of latecomers to the gold rush. They are. That's true. The 49ers are a little bit late. Yeah, and you they, know, they, they don't make much money. 
I think part of what it is, though, with the Mormons is like you're they're kind of proving that like, hey, you can go thousands of miles mm-hmm. on foot, basically out west and be successful. Um, and what happens also at this time, though they weren't Mormons, but you know, I think it's in 1846, the Donner Party sets out. Right. And they hit snow and then just turns into this what we could have a whole episode on this cannibalism episode. Um, but they, they were migrating to the California wagon show from the Midwest and Mormons are actually the ones who come across the Donner party and end up burying a lot of the bodies. Um, but they spend the winter of 1846 and 47 snowbound on their way to California for the gold rush. So this is before the 49ers. Um, but it's, it's kind of, they're all contemporaries, right. And they're watching one another. And like, I think hearing things about, well, this whole group of people made it across and they're, you know, traveling these very long distances and they've <clears throat> been successful and found uh, gold and found land and whatever else. And so I wouldn't say that they paved the way for the cold rush, but I think they're very much a part of that spirit of, you know, uh, moving West and not, not letting anything stop them from moving West. I don't know. Cause like you said, they leave in the winter. Why would you leave anywhere in the winter in the Midwest? But people were kind of getting desperate at this time and just everyone's moving in that direction and the Mormons are amongst those. So you've got the Mormon battalion doing that. Meanwhile, Brigham Young and a, and a relatively small group leaves winter quarters traveling west and they eventually get to Salt Lake Valley um, the official, uh, the actual arrival date is July 21st, 1847, but the one that's celebrated is July 24th, and it's called Pioneer Day. So if you go to Utah, it's still a holiday. It's a state holiday. Um, they get to the Salt Lake Valley, and Brigham Young sits up in his wagon because he'd been sick and says, this is the right place, drive on. And they start immediately carrying out this kind of plan. They dedicate land for a new temple. But they also start planting crops. And laying out the city streets. And they're they're building a city. It's a very grid-like pattern. And there's this kind of, there is a a purpose in the way it's designed. Uh, The temple sits at the middle of the city, the Mm -hmm. center. And but what what surprises me is then they go back to council to winter quarters. Yeah, because they haven't fully like settled there. Is that fair? I guess it just surprised me that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to make the truck back. It's like just send like one super fast guy or a couple. (laughs) Super fast guy. Like, okay, we're here. Now let's turn around and go home. Right. And. But it's once they get back to Council Bluffs, Iowa, that that winter, winter of 1847, uh, 1847-1848, that's when Brigham Young is actually declared the second president of the church after Joseph Smith. And he is officially declared a prophet, seer, and revelator to the world. Well, and he ends up being a far more influential figure in a way than Joseph Smith, because he sets up the Mormon community to thrive and to be successful. Cause had they stayed where they were in Nauvoo, I don't think it would have continued. I think that they would have been driven out. I don't think that there would have been a place for them. Um, so when you're at that real crossroads in 1844 and then the leadership is taken over by Brigham Young, he creates a space for this religion and community to thrive going West and settling down in Utah, that's kind of seals the deal for even allowing this movement to continue. So now they're moving on mass across the established Mormon trail to the Salt Lake Valley. Do you know why the seagull is the state bird of Utah? No. Did you know that? Did you know the seagull is the? I've state seen bird? that, but I, you know, I never even thought about that. But that's kind of weird, isn't it? Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah, I it mean, is. this is a landlocked state, far away from the sea. Yeah. Um. So there are these crickets that attack their crops that summer, and the Mormons pray and fast, and 
all of a sudden these flocks of sweet seagulls swoop in and start eating these crickets. And they're so ravenous for these crickets that they actually vomit up the crickets after they eat them so they can eat more crickets. What? So it is recognized by the Mormons as a miracle. The seagulls have been sent by God to save them. Okay. So then it's the unlikely hero. But it's a verifiable historical event. Multiple witnesses saw this happening. Are there still seagulls in the area today? I wonder, you know, if they were able to stay there or this was just like one sort of. Well, I think one of the explanations is those seagulls were transported across the Rocky Mountains in kind of a freak storm. Oh, they kind of. Yeah. Okay. Shoved them in. They were able to travel because of that. Um, they are not, you know, indigenous. They're not a staple. Right. In Utah. Um, but if you think about it, if you're a seagull, the Great Salt Lake, what's the real difference between it and the ocean for you? Well, it's if pretty you got salty, these tasty, huh? If you got these tasty crickets to eat, yeah, that's fine. Well, that's an interesting little tidbit. But I mean, I was going to think it had something to do with there are Mormons in California at this time, and it's right around now in 1848 that you have those Mormons who are working for Sutter um, who have, who find this giant gold uh, mine and that that area becomes known as Mormon Island. Mm -hmm. And so the Mormons were involved in um, the gold rush. They were involved in that big find. I don't know if I would say that they were responsible for the gold rush though. Well, I mean, here's the thing. So the Mormons blaze a trail that goes west. They definitely do that. They demonstrate that large groups of people can safely traverse the region. They organize a Mormon battalion to fight with U.S. forces against Mexico and the Mexican-American War. They take ships around South America to get to the West Coast. They are involved somehow in the gold rush. You cannot talk about the history of the American West without talking about Mormons. Right. They're, they they're are very much responsible involved for, in yeah, for a lot of the settlement and for a lot of the early events that happened there. Um, and we're going to get into a big one here in a couple minutes, I would assume. Um, well, so 1848 to 1852, the church really starts to thrive. Mm-hmm. Under Brigham Young's leadership. Under Brigham Young. They start to expand. They grow. They have over 17,000 Mormons in Europe. They spread, uh, or 17,000 in England specifically. Um, they also start um, doing missionary work in Hawaii. That's an interesting fact about Mormonism and LDS is that there are more Mormons outside of the United States than there are inside. And that work starts way, way back in the 19th century. But Well, and the interesting thing is, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, the interesting thing is this. One of the things Mormons do is value your lineage, value your family history. So what happens in Hawaii, and we can do a whole episode on this, the first Christian missionaries in Hawaii who are Congregationalists, and they can connect themselves directly back to the pilgrims. Uh, Congregationalists, one of the first things they do is ban things like the hula, limit the use of the Hawaiian language, kind of vilify all these traditional cultural practices. The Mormons don't do that. Mm. And in fact, there is an institution on the island of Oahu today called the Polynesian Cultural Center, that's oh, yeah. run by the LDS. Yeah, I went there. It's amazing. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It's a little creepy, too, when you think about it. Well, when you think about who it's run by and why. Yeah, yes. It's interesting. But- well, because it's you have this, it, at this point when it's created, this overwhelmingly kind of white religion coming in and saving. The white saviors. Mm-hmm. Indigenous 
cultural system. But there is a heavy commitment to the cultural preservation that happens at the Polynesian Cultural Center. Mm-hmm. And it has to be appreciated in some way. But I would say that's why Mormonism has been so successful in other countries is because they don't come in and tell you you have to abandon all your cultural practices. They say you can keep up all your cultural practices, but accept God too. Accept right. this faith. And you have all these Mormon missionaries who go all over the place and they act very differently than uh, your standard evangelical Christian missionaries who are trying to completely transform societies to being more westernized. And the Mormons don't really do that. So September of 1850, something happens, which actually does start to cause consternation amongst outsiders. So Brigham Young is the president of the LDS. He's recognized the, and legitimized. He's the leader of a religion. Mm -hmm. 1850, Millard Fillmore names Brigham Young as territorial governor of Utah. Right, because the Mexican-American War is over now, and now Utah is a territory of the United States. It changes its name from Deseret, which is what the Mormons had called it, to Utah. And now not only has Brigham Young been solidified and legitimized as the leader of this religion, he is now the leader of Utah, of this new territory. And this... That's a conflict. Some, sure. This alarms some people. It's alarming. Should we have a religious leader be a political leader? No, we should not. So what would... But I think Mormons have a legitimate argument to make. Well, I mean, nobody they established else was, that area. Nobody else... Right. Nobody else was rushing to this place to right. settle. Right. I agree. I mean, he definitely did a lot to establish that area um, as white settlers. I mean, that area, right. there were people living there before that, right? When, of course, there's a lot to say there. But it's in terms of like white American, Anglo-Saxon Christian settlers, he was I mean, the I one out say, there. Right. I would say 1848 to 1852 is like this really great moment for Mormonism. Yeah, it starts, or, it's legitimized. It It's legitimized and it starts to expand rapidly. And they actually have successfully carved out this place where they're going to be able to live without persecution. And you have 20,000 Mormons living there. That's a college August, campus. Right. But then August of 1852, what does the church finally say? Oh, yeah, we have polygamy. P.S. We marry yes. lots of women. <laughs> Men are allowed to have more than one wife. So you already have outsiders who are suspicious of having a religious leader as territorial governor. Now the church has just officially announced that they practice polygamy. And this is coming in the middle of the 19th century. And there's a lot of anxiety about social reform and about behaving in certain ways and subscribing to certain familial patterns, they start to make enemies at this point. And that's, a, again, the familiar pattern. I like that you mentioned that because as soon as people figure out, what are these Mormons? Who are they? What are they doing? People start getting really freaked out by what they're doing and they don't like it. So I find it interesting. There are a couple of still extant cultural patterns within Mormon communities that kind of get laid down during this period. One of them is the families that follow Brigham Young on the Mormon trail. The ones that do better are the ones that are prepared. The ones who have food stores with them and have replacement tools and all of this stuff. Jeff, what? what are you getting to? the biggest producers of survival food kits in the United States are Mormon owned, Mormon owned. We have a Mormon closet in our house. Yes. We call so it what's the Mormon a Mormon closet. closet? We call it the what's Mormon, Mormon closet? closet. I think it's a very um, it's, California thing. It must, I don't know. It must be, but we brought it here to Mississippi. So it's, we have a closet in our hallway that I think you would normally put like coats or cleaning supplies or something in. And we just have it stocked up with food and supplies and things that we might need in case of an emergency. We have um, extra toothpaste, extra toothbrushes, extra toilet paper, extra paper towels, tons of canned goods, things that would sustain us if we needed to 
you know, for a while. And I learned that um, my husband's family had one and I opened, I didn't, we didn't have one in my house. And like, I opened his closet one time when we were at his parents' house and I'm like, why are there 10 bottles of Aveeno lotion and 10 things of like toothpaste? And, and he's like, oh, it's the Mormon closet. And I was like, what? And then it's like, oh, that's actually a really good idea. It's kind of like a little Costco in your house. Well, it's, I mean, it is. And this is a lesson that's learned across crossing the Mormon trail is that if you're prepared, you can kind of withstand these things. When we didn't have any problems when the pandemic hit, we weren't out punching people in the face for supplies. Yep. Not that we I would have, have been, but. So I have something, it's not called my Mormon closet. It's called my earthquake kit. It's probably inappropriate to call it that. And I would like to apologize to everyone. Well, it's, um, I mean, my earthquake kit has, has food, like long shelf, like food. For me, for Harvey. Do you have Chef Boyardee's in there? Uh, I think I used to. I used to always treat. have Chef Boyardee's in my earthquake kit for school. Because in California, kids at the beginning of the school year have to bring in their earthquake kit. And I always had Chef Boyardee's in there. Yeah. Um, you could put like a McDonald's hamburger in there probably and it would be fine. It would be fine. <laughs> it would be fine. Uh, but, but you've got that. But I also think the other cultural pattern that gets established is this idea that if you are not politic, if a Mormon is not politically in charge of Utah, the ability of Mormons to persist is endangered. I would agree with that. And this leads to probably so go back to our history of the worst presidents and one we didn't talk a lot about, but he's widely regarded as the worst U.S. president, well, at least until the recent past. James Buchanan. Mm-hmm. Um, the recent past. So what did, <laughs> what was, so he's running against the Republican party, the newly formed Republican party in 1856. Do you know what the Republican party ran on? what their platform was? Well, that the Mormons were a big threat. I mean, he was really... That there were two vestiges of barbarism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mormons. Polygamy and slavery. Yeah. Well, and they get everybody all into like a tizzy over it too, right? Because really, Mormon people living in this Utah territory are not a threat at all to any to really to anybody right i mean i think within their own community there's a lot of awful things happening in terms of the treatment of women etc not that women were being treated very well elsewhere in the united states at this time but the the republican party and even um abraham lincoln too right like it's everyone in a tizzy over the mormons the mormons you know they're a threat they're and and now buchanan's a democrat his party does not officially isn't kind of railing. They support slavery. They're not railing against political polygamy, but I think it becomes an easy thing for Buchanan to latch on to because it was sensational. Polygamy. And to say, oh yeah, polygamy is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So now here's the thing. And this is, this is the start of what we call the, the Utah war. Mm-hmm. And the question is this, is this incompetence on Buchanan's part? Because he was definitely incompetent. Or does he intentionally – basically what happens is they send these federal appointees to Utah, and according to people in Utah, the appointees are just incredibly incompetent. So they don't let them assume their jobs. Well, but he declares the region as being in rebellion. Right. Like, so he appoints a new governor. What were, they, what were they doing that was being in rebellion? They weren't practicing letting – Practicing polygamy? Practicing polygamy and not letting these federal officials mm-hmm. take their – take their positions. Um, He appoints Alfred Cumming as governor and he gives 5,000 troops and assigns them the job of accompanying Cumming to Utah. That's threatening. They've got troops basically. Yeah. If you're Mormon and remember, this is not that long after Joseph Smith has been killed. Really? No. What does this look like to you? An invasion. And what are they probably going to do to you? Murder you. Kill you. Yeah. Or stop you from living, you know, 
living in religious freedom, right? Which is was supposed to be like this core, you know, belief in this country is that you have religious freedom. Um, so yeah, they get really, uh, I don't know, paranoid, I guess might be the right thing because in 1857, September, you have a Mormon militia that forms. So we talked about this a little bit earlier that they're very organized, highly organized troops. And well, that's why the army wanted the Mormon battalion. Absolutely. They knew that they could travel long distances, that they were disciplined, that they were kind of trained in militia sort of manners. I don't know. Um, so they, there's a Mormon militia that's led by a man named John Lee. And they actually team up with Native Americans who, of course, are, you know, prevalent in that region. And they attack a train of settlers coming from Arkansas now, what I'm unclear on here, this September 11th, 1857. September 11th, isn't that interesting, isn't it? It's easy to remember the date, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm a little unclear on is like these were settlers that were being attacked coming from Arkansas. This becomes this episode becomes known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which the Mormon LDS Church has acknowledged, and they've actually opened their archives to allow a couple of historians to come in and write about it. And there's even um, some articles on the LDS website about it. They acknowledge that this was a bad thing that happened, um, but they end up slaughtering 120 men, women, and children who were on the settler train. Now, what I'm confused about here is did they think that it was a part of the government invading so, them? So it seems this. So they get news that these 5,000 soldiers are coming, and very quickly on, uh, the Nauvoo Legion under Wells and Smith they didn't they knew they could not directly engage the army so what they actually attempted to do was attack the supply trains and lines of communication of the army right and evidently they thought this group of settlers were actually somehow affiliated with the army but they weren't they weren't they clearly a weren't group of men well, women and children migrating it's men women and children right They actually do end up sparing the lives of 17 children who are under eight. They didn't kill kids under eight years old, but they left them orphaned. So now think of it. You are living in the Eastern United States. You're Protestant. Both political parties agreed Mormons were bad because of polygamy. There's this whole war that's seemingly going place in Utah. And now a group of Mormons just attacked a group of women and children and killed them. Not great PR. This is not great PR. But it paves the way for a new governor to take control of Utah. Federal troops Mm -hmm. storm into the region after the massacre. um, And they march into Salt Lake City and just take over. And then well, the- Salt Lake City was abandoned. People left because they were fearful of what would happen if they oh, got caught you? there. And they moved to Provo. Right. So the army gets there and they're like, there's no rebellion here. <laughs> yeah. Because there, there wasn't a rebellion. I mean. And here's the thing is, what really causes the Utah war to peter out? The Civil War. Well, sure. We were distracted. By other things. There's another war to think about. Because, you know, we usually, we put the Civil War, like 1861, 1865, right? But there are a lot of events leading up to that and skirmishes and attacks on federal outposts, particularly in these um, less occupied regions throughout the South, Texas, and et cetera. And there's a lot going on that's brewing up to the Civil War actually officially breaking out. And so in the late 1850s and early 1860s, the Mormons are not really the problem at this time. You know, it's like a very small distraction in, in retrospect to what's to come. So the Civil War kind of happens. And during the period of the Civil War, the Mormon church is kind of left alone. Yeah, because what would they even do for them, you know? 
they so they construct the temple, the Salt Lake Temple. Um, I, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is formed, like all of these things that are still around today. Uh, the Relief Society was revived, and this is a society that provided monies to help Mormons from areas where they were being persecuted resettle to Utah. And we actually get um, the first kind of prominent Mormon woman who has a position of power, Eliza Snow, becomes president of this Relief Society. How does that happen? It's a very interesting thing, because what else does the Relief Society start to do? They campaign for women's rights. Right. Women... um... Mormon women were heavily involved in the women's rights. 1870. And it's these territories out West, which we've talked about a lot of times that end up granting women's suffrage far before anything out East does. So 1870 women are given the right to vote in Utah, in Utah territory. Um, But what's interesting is after the civil war, there's an anti, well, there's an anti-bigamy bill had been passed during the civil war. Um, and it made it illegal to have more than one wife. Right. Can't uh, do that. But here's the thing. How do you enforce that in the, in the Great Basin? Well, you don't. They don't. It takes a really, really long time to enforce that. Right? I mean, for the longest time, they don't, and they can't enforce it. And there's still places, there are pockets in northern Arizona where this is still practiced. It's very difficult to regulate, even though LDS shuts it down in the early 20th century and starts siding with the federal authorities. It's very, very difficult to to regulate it. So here's the thing is, is Brigham Young starts to be much more late in his life involved. I mean, first of all, he's arrested on charges of polygamy, Mm -hmm. but he seems to become very involved about organizing kind of groups specifically targeting or geared towards women within the LDS. Do you think he realizes something's wrong? Because you remember when he first heard about polygamy, he was like, Oh no, that's not good. Well, I think he realized that that was the way to legitimize himself because unless he were acting like the prophet being Joseph Smith, then he wasn't going to get any traction in becoming the leader of this you know, the new leader of the group, right? So does he use polygamy as a convenient way to to bolster his own credibility? Yes. And I think he uses it to, and especially when he starts kind of letting women get involved. I mean, this is an age old thing where men who are in charge will kind of delegate their authority to some women who they're close to. And I think he might use it in a way to sort of delegate authority among several different women of different age groups too, right? It's a great way to solidify power. So now we have, after 1870, so we've got a transcontinental railroad that's in operation, and you start to get a lot of land grabs that are happening across the American West. The Mormons help build the transcontinental railroad a lot too. That's an important fact. They're heavily involved in in building the infrastructure of the American West. Mormons control a lot of land Uh in the American West, because in many ways, and in many cases, they were the first Caucasian people to arrive and lay legal claim to land. Right. And 1882, the Edmonds Act gets passed. So remember, we already have an act that makes polygamy illegal. The Edmonds Act gets passed and says it's illegal to cohabitate with more than one woman. Now, how do you regulate that? Chester Arthur, president of the United States, tells Utah, all Mormons who practice polygamy will be disenfranchised, stripped of the right to vote, or forbidden to hold public office. Right. So then you start having these punitive measures being taken to try to break up the polygamy. Um, I would imagine that there were a lot of people who were pretty in favor of this, even Mormons, because I think it'd be very difficult. Don't, I well, mean, 
I, I mean, it, first of all, it's a gross violation of due process. It right. disenfranchises basically every Mormon. So you're disenfranchising people based on religion. Are these federal regulations are made specifically against Mormons, like bigamy laws and stuff? It's specifically to target Mormons, right. although at times it gets used to it gets used to target other groups. So 1887. So remember, we've gotten bigamy is illegal. Now we've gotten cohabitation. So you can't even be like, well, we're not technically married. We just live together. We are not allowed to do that either. 1887, the Edmunds Tucker Act gets passed, which disincorporates the Mormon church and seizes church property. Which is wild because the federal government never gets involved in church stuff, right? I mean, and this is an assault on a specific religion. Yeah. Yeah, to disincorporate one specific religion and then take a bunch of money from it. I mean, that's, that is, it's a specific targeting. And it's important to note too, that the church is growing big at this time. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in, I think in 1857, I said there were 20,000 members. By this time, there were over a hundred thousand members. And then that number doubles again, just in a few years. There are a lot of Mormons now at this time in the late 19th century. And so it is becoming a little bit more of a threat, I think. Um, and so, yeah, the, the federal government does target them multiple on multiple occasions. And the uh, Mormon people, like people in LDS, they have a huge distrust of the federal government still to this day. That's like pretty deeply rooted in there. Well, so, so you've got this persecution that's happening. You get Mormons at this point who are fleeing the country. Which they had tried to do before, right? Um, and finally, in 1890, the fourth president of the Mormon church declares that God has sent him this revelation. Um, and... He basically says, sometimes God says polygamy is okay. Sometimes he says it isn't. And he basically says polygamy is ending in Utah. It has to in order for the religion to continue. Because the United States government was not going to let up on this. And if they wanted the religion to continue, they they had to actually, they had to renounce it. Or denounce it. So that's 1890. There's this official proclamation. Uh, Persecution ends for the most part, although there's still this lasting stigma that gets attached to them. And what's but, their reward though for denouncing polygamy? Well, statehood. Statehood, finally. 1896. Even though they had the population necessary long before this. Yeah, and the settlement and the development and everything and the involvement in multiple facets, right? They definitely qualified well before, but it wasn't until they... Um, said no more polygamy that the federal government rewards the territory with statehood in 1896. So here's the thing. (laughs) Polygamy is officially banned in the LDS. Mm -hmm. However, there are groups within the LDS that still practice it. Yeah. And it goes widely unregulated. I mean, even to the point where, like, there are television shows that cover this. Right. I am not ashamed to admit that I've watched Sister Wives. (laughs) So the 20th century, really, I think, is a much easier history to tell for the LDS. Because this is a church just trying to be a mainstream church at this point. Yes. And they start to take some pretty drastic member... uh, excuse me, they tried to take some drastic measures against polygamy um, and start excommunicating people who uh, are practicing it. And so even to this day, people who practice polygamy are not a part of the main LDS church. They're part of fundamentalist groups of LDS that are much, much smaller. Um, And they're not, they're not accepted by the main church, which now has millions of members, Mm -hmm. but it's still, you're right. Like the stigma of it. I mean, I think that's one of the first things you learn about Mormonism growing up is like, oh, polygamy. Um, and it kind of sticks to them, even though 
1904, they were excommunicating people. So it's been well over 100 years that they have denounced it. And it's com been completely unacceptable in their church. But it's still very much the legacy of this of this religion. But there are other ways I think Mormonism touches everybody's lives in the United States they don't even realize today. So if you like, if you do any kind of genealogy on like Ancestry.com. This is so interesting. Or any of those groups, almost all of those are Mormon-owned businesses. Yeah. Why? The why is the interesting part. So please tell us why, Hillary. Okay. So Mormons are really interested in genealogy because they hold what's called baptisms for the dead. They want everybody to become a Mormon, dead or alive. That is their main mission and goal on this earth. And so they go through death records and they have children stand in. And I'm not like little children, but I think like preteens and young teenagers um, stand in baptismal fonts and waters and they baptize them in the name of people who are dead. And so the Mormons became very invested in genealogical research and building family trees and figuring out everybody who's ever been alive ever and connecting all these people together. Um, Ancestry.com is run by them. And then a lot of the DNA testing stuff too. Mm -hmm. um, and we're all really into that now. And we, I mean, so many people I know have Ancestry.com profiles, but all of that was built by LDS with the intention of creating a master list of who's been alive. Um, and then they go through it methodically ticking off names and baptizing people posthumously and using, you know, kids as stand-ins to say, okay, now your name is, you know, Jane Smith and I baptize you, Jane Smith. And then they dunk the kid and bring it back up. And these kids are performing dozens of these at a time because they're trying to baptize everybody into the Mormon faith. So where does this become a real problem? Well, I mean, in a lot of what ways. specific group do that? What specific group do they start to baptize? They start baptizing Jewish people who were murdered in the Holocaust, and Jewish people are Jewish, wow. and they don't want to be baptized as Mormons because they're well, Jewish. They were, they were persecuted because of their religion, right? And isn't there something ironic about this religion, Mormonism, that has been persecuted mm -hmm. because of their beliefs? baptizing another group who was per persecuted at a much larger scale and for much longer in the name of their own religion. I mean, it is, it's, so how does the church stand on that? Are they still doing Holocaust victim I, as baptisms? As far as I know, I mean, they baptize a lot of people. Like they posthumously baptize Michael Jackson. Like they do a lot of different people because it's not, it's not who the people are or who they were. They don't look at it as like, oh, well, this person was Jewish or like, they don't think about it in that way. They're like, everybody needs to be Mormon and we oh. are saving their souls, their immortal souls. And they're gone now, but we're doing them a favor in the afterlife. And to them, it's not political. It's not, it has nothing to do with like being historically sensitive. It has nothing to do with, Anything that like we're looking at and going, oh my gosh, that's a real big, that's problematic. And like, it's problematic that you don't want to save these people's souls. So they don't look at it as like, oh, we're baptizing Holocaust victims. They're just like, we're just baptizing everybody who's died in the world. And the LDS church is everywhere. There, How many members? There's 14 million members now worldwide. Yeah. And most of them are outside of the United States. Um, and a core part of Mormonism um, as a coming of age ritual, um, Mormon men and women, right, go out on mission and they go to other countries and they recruit members. It's their job to go out and proselytize to people all over the world. They go to South America, they go to Asia, they go to Africa, they go to all these different continents um, proselytizing and trying to recruit members in the Mormon faith. And it's one of the fastest growing religions in the world because of that. Well, so here's, here's an interesting thing. So one of the key tenets of Mormon doctrine is this idea of continuing revelation. 
that God continues to reveal things to people, as he did to Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and other people. And I think what's interesting about that idea of continuing revelation is it makes this religion, maybe more than any other contemporary religion, really able to change as societal conditions change. Right. That's true. That's true. Because in a way, they're able to kind of keep up with the times. So why aren't why isn't the Mormon Church at the vanguard of social issues then? Why have they become the poster children for a very conservative family values, for example? Well, just because they can change with the times doesn't mean that they change in a liberal direction. Okay. Right. I mean, they can, if they wanted to, they could, right? They could be like, oh, I got a revelation from God that said that abortion's okay or something, right? They don't do that because they're very, very fundamentally conservative. Um, they could. Well, this, pres- this presents a real problem for Salt Lake City when they're trying to get the Winter Olympics. Right. Right. Well, I mean, there's no alcohol there. There wasn't. It's hard to get alcohol. In right, Salt Lake City. Right. I mean, and it, I mean, I've lived it's in places. It's easier now than it used to be. It is, but I've lived in places where like you can't buy alcohol after a certain time. You can only go to state shops for alcohol, um, you know, these prohibition laws and stuff. Um, but it's hard to find alcohol in Salt Lake City. Not as hard as it used to be. And I guess, I guess like they're changing the times a little bit. BYU. Well, you lived in other. Well, you've lived in other places that have, like Pennsylvania, has its own kooky. Oh my gosh, Pennsylvania <laughs> has the most insane alcohol and liquor distribution laws ever. You can only buy beer and wine. Like you can't buy beer, wine, and liquor at the same place. You have to go to different places. And it's a state-run store. It's for a liquor. state-run store for liquor, and you have to you have to go at certain times on certain days in order to get it. And this is all left over from Prohibition, but ironically, Pennsylvania was the wettest state during Prohibition. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, but Utah's another place, I mean, where it's it's so conser- socially conservative and it's hard to get alcohol there. Um, but they have to change some of these laws to get the Olympics. Right. I would argue that this is why Mitt Romney lost the election in 2012, because he's Mormon. Possibly. I mean, really, I think that people were not keen on a Mormon president. I mean, we're still not keen on a Catholic president, right? So you think it's the same situation like in 1960 with Kennedy? With Kennedy. Worse. Worse, because Kennedy got elected. We are more comfortable with Catholics, even though we don't like them. Did Kennedy get elected? Oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot. There was some shenanigans there you're right yes dead people voted in illinois you want to talk about election fraud americans the 1960 election was election fraud there were a lot of dead people voted in dead people voted in chicago yeah Yeah. but i i mean i i think you're right i and here's the thing is i think basically for the last hundred years the mormon church is trying to get they've been trying to get out from under the shadow of polygamy Mm mm-hmm well, and they've been doing that by recruiting people in other countries. And I think that they they base a lot of their future and their hope for the future in places outside of the United States. And they always have done that. I mean, since, you know, we started in 1844 today, that's always been their thing. It's like, we're not, we don't have to be in the United States to be this religion. Right. We'll go anywhere and we'll baptize anybody and we'll allow anybody into our religion. It's, we're not a... Because I think a lot of times, like evangelical, like Christians in the United States are very nationalistic. Mormons aren't. And they're especially not nationalistic toward the United States government. They have no, there's no love loss between the Mormons and the United States government. Like they don't right. really care. Um, right. They have this thing where um, there's a lot of Mormons. So this is in the book that I read under the banner of heaven, um, where a lot of Mormon people sign up for government aid not because they need it, because they think that it's appropriate to, quote, bleed the beast. And they're like, we should milk everything out of the government. They're evil and horrible and awful, so we'll get whatever we can out of them. And that's what they call it, bleeding the beast. I thought that was so interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Well, 
I mean, that's a broad overview of the history of the Mormon church. And obviously we kind of glossed over a lot of stuff in the 20th century. I don't think the 20th century is particularly. The 20th noteworthy. century is about growth and incorporation and, you know, not being persecuted anymore and being able to grow to the, to the religion that it is today. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, well, this was fun. So, uh, yeah, it was. So next week, finally, we're going to talk to people about what the Second Great Awakening was. We're doing things real backwards, but yeah, next week, Second Great Awakening. Yes, we are doing things backwards. Yeah. But, um, and then we've got some other things that are coming up. We will be talking about Ruby Ridge. I know some people are be like, Can we please talk about Ruby Ridge because you keep referencing it, but I'm not really sure what you mean. Um, we'll get there. We will get there. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining.